Take your Bibles tonight and let's turn to that passage in Ephesians 2. And uh, we're going to begin reading verse number 1. So wherever you are, if you are able, if you will stand in reverence to the reading of God's Word. And we'll read through the first seven verses and we'll see where the Lord takes us tonight. The Bible says, And he, and you hath he quickened, who were dead in trespasses and sins, wherein in times past you walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience, among whom also we all had our conversation in times past, in the lust of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. And were by nature the children of wrath, even as others. But God, two of the greatest words in the Bible, but God, who is rich in mercy, for his great love wherewith he loved us, even when we were dead in sins, hath quickened us together with Christ. By grace you are saved and hath raised us up together and made us sit in, together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace and his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. Father, I just want to thank you again for your powerful, precious, and amazing grace. And Father, I pray that, Lord, you would help us to understand exactly what your grace brought. And Father, we'll thank you and we'll praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. If you can be seated together. Well, from what we find is from verse 1 to verse 7 is one sentence in the original text. And so what we're going to do is we're going to look at this together tonight. Now, as you begin, you find out in verses 1, 2, and 3, you find out the condition of you and I, or the condition of man before God saved us. And then in verse 4, 5, 6, and 7, you find out exactly what took place as God saved us and after God saved us. Now, one of the things you and I have to understand is, is when the gospel message has a twofold application to it. There's two aspects to the appeal of the gospel. And you say, what do you mean there's two aspects? Well, one aspect is that that is uh, drawing us away from something, and another aspect is drawing us to someone. So in other words, the gospel is intended to get us away from something and bring us to someone. Now what you find in this passage is in verse 1, 2, and 3, you have what God's trying to pull man away from. And then in verse 4, 5, you find out exactly what God is drawing them to, himself. And so this is the gospel message in the very essence of it. And so why in the world would Paul write this to this church of Ephesus that he called saints, that he called saved? Why wouldn't Paul write this to them? Well, it's very simple. If you and I do not understand exactly what God did when he saved us, and more specifically, who you were before God saved you, you're never going to understand how to live the Christian life. Because the Christian life is lived in a way that it's a continuous repeating of what God done when he saved you. 
You were saved by grace through faith. You walk by grace through faith. But the understanding is that if you don't understand who you were before God saved you, you're never going to understand why that is a necessity in your life. So what we're going to do tonight is we're going to begin in verse 1, 2, and 3 at looking at a past reality, who you and I were before God saved us. And then we're going to look at verses 4 and 5 and possibly 6 and 7, and we're going to look at a present reality, who we are now that we're saved. Now, I want us to begin by this past reality in verse 1, 2, and 3. This past reality depicts the very essence of the desperate state that we were in before God redeemed us, before God saved us. Now, what i found in America today is most people have no understanding of who they were before God saved them. We have these words that I was a sinner, but we don't understand what that means. We don't understand that being a sinner is not just because you've done some certain things. Being a sinner is the basis of who you were. Listen, your sin was the essence that came out of who you were. You didn't sin to become a sinner. You were a sinner and therefore you sinned. And so to understand who we were before God saved us is essential for us to know. So let's look at this together. The first thing is the condition of depravity. The condition of depravity. He says here, and you hath he quickened. Now, the hath he quickened was added by the translators. It's not in the original text. So the way it reads in the original text is this, and you who were dead in trespasses and sins. So what it's speaking of here is it's speaking of a condition that you and I were in before God saved us. And you said, what was that condition? Well, it's very simple. It says, we were dead. Now, what does this word dead mean? Well, it means that, that spiritual separation from God. But it means something even more than that. And you say, preacher, what do you mean? Well, in being separated from God, we were separated from the life of God, the, the essence of God, the spirit of God, the, our relationship with God. We were separate from the very thing that would only deliver us. The life of God is the only remedy for man. And so when it says we were dead, it simply means that in separation, we were separated from the life of God, separated from the presence of God, and being dead here speaks of a spiritual condition. Now I want you to understand this. Where did we come to the place of inheriting this death? Romans 5.12 tells us, Wherefore, as by one man sin entered into the world. Who's that one man? Adam. And death by sin. So death passed upon, now listen to this, all men, for that all have sinned. So can I tell you this is a condition that every man, woman, boy, and girl that's ever breathed the breath of this, of this earth, is condition is death. You and I were born dead. You and I will stay dead until God resurrects your life. So the only hope here is a resurrected life. So God has to take us from death to life. So what exactly, how does this death apply? Well, it's amazing. A great illustration would be this. Find a dead corpse. Walk up to that dead corpse and try to do something to that corpse to get that corpse to respond to you in any way, shape, or form. Hey, walk up to it. Shake them. 
Walk up to him, hit him, walk up to him, speak to him. And here's what you're going to find. A dead man cannot respond to any outward influence upon it. Why? Because they're dead. They don't have an appetite. They don't have hunger. They don't have thirst. They don't have taste. A dead man is dead. So the picture here is in a spiritual reality that when you and I were lost, we had no ability to respond to God. You had no ability to have an appetite for God. You had no ability nor desire to seek God. The Bible says no man seeks after God. And so a dead man literally is unresponsive to the things of God. Now that doesn't mean a person can't be educated about the things of God. It doesn't mean a person can't have knowledge about the things of God. But can I tell you, what it means is, even though they may have knowledge about the things of God, there's no life that causes the things of God to be the very essence of who they are. In other words, their life does not come into conformity with the things of God. So what brought us to this place of a dead state? Well, you said Adam, yes. But notice specifically, it tells us here. It says we're dead in trespasses and sins. Now, I want you to understand something. An unbeliever is not sick. In other words, an unbeliever does not need resuscitation. An unbeliever needs a resurrection. And so you and I must understand, this is not a sick condition. This is a corpse decision. This is a dead man walking. And so it says we're dead in trespasses and sins. That word in there speaks of the sphere of what we live. In other words, our deadness comes because the sphere of our life is trespasses and sins. Trespasses speaks of this in the original language. It speaks of, of walking the wrong way. It speaks of slipping, falling, stumbling, or deviating from the things of God. So in other words, a dead man, a lost man, will always walk in a course that is against the things of God or opposite of the things of God. Sin is the word harmatia. It means to miss the mark. So not only do I walk in a way that is away from the things of God, I continuously miss the mark of the holiness of God. And so what it says is, as a dead man, the sphere of my life, the very essence or the environment through which I live is trespass and sin. And this is the essence of our condition of depravity. Now think about it. This is where every one of us were before God saved us. And aren't you glad God intervened on your behalf? So that is the condition of depravity. But Paul doesn't stop there. Paul goes on and begins to unpack this condition. Notice secondly the conduct of depravity. He says we're in in times past. Now I want you to understand this wording really, really close. Remember, he's speaking to believers, not lost folks. So he's speaking to believers here, and he says, listen, this is who you were, but it's not who you are. This is how you used to live, but it's not how you live now. He says, where in times past, when you were dead, this is how you walk. But you don't walk that way anymore. Listen, folks, I, I can't help myself but to stop here a minute. 
for these folks that think that you can be saved and walk like you walked before God saved you or live like you lived before God saved you, all I can say is God help you. You need to get light to the truth that if you're dead, you're going to walk one way. If you're saved, you're going to walk a different way. And if you're still walking the way of a dead man, guess what? You're still dead. And you and I need to understand there's a change that takes place. But anyway, let's go back to our our outline here, the conduct. Notice what it says. We're in times past. You walked according to the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air. Now, what is this course of this world? It's talking about the age or, if you will, the the influence of this world. In other words, the course of this world would speak of, of the atmosphere or the direction or the mindset of this world. So in other words, in our lostness, Paul says in times past before God saved us, we walked, our conduct was in conjunction or within union of the ways of this world. You see, what this world has to offer a lost person is appealing to a lost person. Because what is the world's philo- what is the world's mindset? What is the world's philosophy? The world's mindset and the world's philosophy, it's all about man. It's all about you. In other words, you set your own course. You set your own destiny. You desire it. You set your mind to it. You can do it. And a lost person, guess what? Their nature is about them. It's all about them. And so the world is, and the philosophy of the world is man-centered. The philosophy of a lost person by nature is man-centered. And all of a sudden now, a lost person finds entertainment and joy in the course of this world. And their conduct begins to be in conjunction with that or consistent with that. In other words, a lost person is not going to swim against the tide of this world. A lost person is going to swim with the tide of this world. Because it's, number one, it's easy for them. Number two, it's in conjunction with who they are. And so the conduct of you and I before God saved us was in the stream of the thinking or the mindset or the philosophy of this world, which was self. Now, you may not say this about yourself, but the Bible says it about you and about me. That before God saved us, self was the center of our focus. Now, you may say, well, preacher, I I don't believe that. I, I try to put others above myself. Well, can I tell you, even people that are very kind to others can still be lost. And you say, why is that? Because here's the reason. They are kind to others because it makes them feel good that they've done something good. So who's the focus? Self. I mean, listen, you and I can try to build ourselves up by what we do. We can do, quote, unquote, good deeds. But in reality, the motivation behind those deeds, whether we'll acknowledge it or not, many times is self-centered. And so you and I need to understand that the essence of a dead man is the course of this world. The conduct of a dead man is the course of this world. And he walks according to this present evil age is what Galatians 1.4 says. He walks in accordance with this present evil age. 
And so you see the condition of depravity. You see the conduct of depravity. But notice the control of depravity. It says, according to the prince of power of this air, the spirit that now worketh in the children of disobedience. Now what is this spirit that worketh in the children of disobedience? Here's what it means. It is the spirit of, of that that is consistent with, the, with the, our enemy. And it's a spirit, it is a bend, if you will, a compulsion, if you will, that causes it to be bent towards sin and towards self. What was the prince in power of this air? What was his mindset? I will exalt myself above the throne of the Most High God. That was his mindset. So what kind of control or what kind of compulsion do you and I have in our old nature, in our lostness? It's a compulsion to exalt self. To, to entertain self, to appease self. That's the reason, here's what you find. Someone that is lost, they cannot stand the thought of someone saying that I have to give God control of my life. Because if I gave God control of my life, then therefore I am choosing against self day by day. And I'm siding with God day by day. But that's the essence of what it's saying. It's saying as a lost person, the bend of my life, the compulsion of my life was towards self and sin. And this controls us. Liberty, you've heard me say this a million times. Don't get mad at a lost person for acting like a lost person. They can't help themselves. That's who they are. That's the inward compulsion of their life. They're controlled by the spirit of disobedience. And they can't act any other way. Now, I've had this discussion with a lot of people over the years, and, 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 and it's amazing. Sometimes you, you have people that do some things. I mean, people that you really care about, and you, you, you may even love, it may even be family members, that do some things, and, and, you, and you, call, you, you scratch your head and you say, I can't believe anybody would say that. I can't believe anybody would do that. And then they do it again and again and again and again. And every time you get hurt, you get, you get mad, you get irritated. And then you need to come to the place of dawning on you. That maybe the reason they're doing or saying what they're saying Maybe the reason they're always hateful. Maybe the reason they're always ridiculing people. Or maybe the reason they're always talking down to people. It's because that's the only way they know how. Because it's the compulsion of their life. It's the essence of their life. It's the depravity of their life. They're being controlled by their old nature. You see, this old nature that you inherited of Adam, it controls you until the day God saves you. It controls you. Well, notice another aspect of a dead man. The cares of depravity. Watch verse 3. Among whom also we all had. Notice it doesn't say some of us had. It says we all had. Our conversation, the word conversation means lifestyle. We all had our lifestyle, our conversation in times past. Notice, there was a change took place. But before the change, in the lust or desires of the flesh, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind. 
You see, this is the cares of depravity. So what do you care about when you're lost? What did you care about when you were dead? Your own fleshly desires and way of thinking. In other words, it speaks of this. This, this word lust here or desire, it's a strong word in the Greek text. And here's what it means. A strong willingness or a strong wanting or someone seeking something with great diligence because it's their passion. And so the idea here is that in that day that we were lost, that day before God saved us, it says we walk in the desires of our flesh, fulfilling the desires of our flesh and our mind. In other words, those things that I desired in my heart, I went after with vigor. I went after with passion. Those things that I thought was right in my mind. I listen, I would stand up for my rights. I know what's right. I know what's best. Because listen, it was focused on self. And we would walk and walk and walk and walk. Trying to find peace, trying to find happiness, trying to find some sort of measure of peace. But the whole time we couldn't find it because we were after our own desires, our own way of thinking, and we did not have the life of God. Therefore, we did not have His desires or His way of thinking. And we were left to a course or a walking that was of our own. And you care about this greatly. You pursued it with great vigor. James says that sin, listen, when you and I sin, you can't say the devil made me do it. Here's what James says. When sin, what does it come from? Sin, when temp, you're tempted, you're tempted by your own lust, your own desires. When those desires conceive, they produce sin. And when sin conceives, it produces death. So when I was lost, when you were lost, all I knew to do was walk in accordance with my own inward desires. And there would be temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation. And oh, I had a compulsion. I have had a bent towards those in my desires. And I'd grab a hold of them time and time again. Now, I don't want anybody to be deceived here because I want you to understand something. You can have been morally taught right to the point that morally being taught right, you may have a desire for something, but you're able to say no to that because of your moral upbringing. But the only way that you can have victory over temptation after temptation after temptation after temptation is you've got to go from a dead man to an alive man with the life of God. It's the only way. It's the only way. I don't know how many times I've had counseling with people over the years and they find themselves walking in a in a course of sin, sometimes months and years upon end, time and time again, they find themselves right back in the same sin, right back in the same trap. And I try to get them to understand that if this is the course, if this is the bend of your heart, 
Something is desperately wrong. Something's desperately missing. Because the thing is this, as a lost person, my bend was towards these things. But as a saved person, my bend is towards righteousness and holiness. It doesn't mean I'm not going to sin as a saved person. But I want to tell you what, when I do, I promise you, God will take you out behind the woodshed. And all of a sudden in your heart of hearts, you know, oh God, I shouldn't have went there. Forgive me, old father. I mean, you and I need to understand that this state of death, it affects our conduct, it controls us, and it proves itself out by the cares of our life. We fulfill the only desires of our heart. But notice the last thing about our past reality, the condemnation of depravity. Notice what it says here in verse 3. And we're by nature the children of wrath, even as others. Now, I want to make this statement, and I want to make it really, really clear. An unsaved person does not grow into his condemnation. An unsaved person, the gavel of condemnation, was threw down in the mother's womb. A person was born condemned. The Bible says we were born or conceived in our mother's womb in iniquity. And so here's the reality of it. This condemnation of God tells us that we are children of wrath. Now, Notice earlier it says we were children of disobedience. Now it takes us to the very condemnation that is upon our life. We're children of wrath. You see, the disobedience was just the fruit of the root problem, which we were dead. The wrath is the essence of the outcome of our root problem, death. We're children of wrath. Now, here's the glorious thing about all this. The Bible says in Romans 13 that God shut us up in disobedience that he could show mercy to us. And you say, preacher, what does that mean? Here's the thing. God allowed us to live out our depravity for however long it was before God saved you. But in doing that, here's what he did. He had to get a man or a woman or a boy or a girl to see their condition through Holy Spirit conviction before he could ever save them. And if God never allowed a person to see their condition, the evidence of their condition. All these things that we're talking about being true of their life, lived out in their life. That how would he ever get them to understand that they have a, desire, a deep, deep, deep need for the remedy God had in Jesus Christ? So here's the reality of it all. I walked in my lostness as a child of disobedience, a child of wrath under the condemnation of God. The full wrath of God was my lot and going to be my end. And God in His mercy and grace patiently waited, patiently walked us through, patiently protected us, patiently kept us from death, patiently. 
until the day he could get us to see ourselves the way he saw us. Now, I don't know about you, but if that's not mercy, I don't know what is. I mean, God would do that for us. Now, you say, well, preacher, you can't prove that in the Bible. Oh, yes, I can. Second Peter chapter 3, verse 8, listen to what it says. But, beloved, be not ignorant of this one thing, that one day with the Lord is a thousand years. And a thousand years is a day. What is that speaking of? His patience, His mercy, His grace. That listen, we may, we may see some of our family or friends that we're praying for that God would save. And, and we look at it and say, oh God, would you save them today? What you waiting on, God? Hey, I want to tell you something. You ever thought that maybe God's got to get them to a place where they can finally see themselves the way God sees them? And God is protecting them until God gets them there. God's got a hedge around them. It's a hedge of thorns, yes. But God's got a hedge around them until he can get them to that place. And be restful. Why? Because a day is like a thousand years to the Lord. Hey, God knows. God knows. God knows the timing. You say, well, that don't apply to salvation. Yes, it does. Listen to the rest, rest of the verse. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some men count slackness, but is long-suffering to us, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. But, in other words, there's coming a day where God's going to cut it off. But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens shall pass away as a great noise, and the elements shall met with fervent heat. The earth also and the works therein shall be burned up. Here's what I'm trying to tell you. If you're here today and you're listening to me, and these, these characteristics of a dead man, oh, they're resonating with your heart. Hey, they're, they're pursing your heart. They're plucking your heart. They're thrusting you through. This is who I am. I choose self over God all the time. That's my lifestyle. That's who I am. Then here's what I'm trying to tell you. Maybe just today, God's got, finally got you to the place. You can see yourself the way God sees you. You can see the desperation of your depravity. And God in his mercy and grace, he kept you from that car accident. He kept you from being killed by something else or someone else. He protected you. He's kept you until the day, maybe today, that he can show you who you are. And right now, God's ready to save you. Because it's not his will that any should perish. But there's coming a day where God says that's it. And then you live under the condemnation you were born in. And the consequences of it become true of your life. You see, Paul's trying to get the church of Ephesus to understand the grace and mercy of God. Who they were and who they are on this side of His grace. And if you don't understand that, you're never going to be in awe of who He is or what He's done. Because we so watered it down in America. We so made sin we use terms nowadays in America. Oh, they just made a mistake. Oh, they didn't make a mistake. They sinned against a holy God. We use terms like alternate lifestyle, freedom of choice. We use all these terms to try to water down what sin is. 
And the whole time, God's trying to get us to understand what it really means when we were dead in our trespasses and sins. And we walked according to the course of this world, choosing our desires and our way of thinking over God time and time and time again. Well, that's the past reality if you're saved. What's the present reality? But God. But God. But God. This word, but God, speaks powerfully concerning your life and my life. Let's look at a regenerated life. But God, who is rich in mercy, for His great love, His great love wherewith He loved us. Now, I don't know about you, but after reading verse 1 through 3 and knowing that's who I was, why in the world would God even love us? I'm going to tell you why. He is love. He can't do anything else. How many times have y'all heard me say that God loved us in spite of us? This but God speaks of the intervening work of God. In other words, it speaks that in our condition, now remember, a dead man can't what? He can't respond. So if salvation requires the response of faith. What had to take place for me to respond? God had to do something. You say, what did he do? Well, it's called the awakening of the soul. Now, the awakening of the soul is not the regenerating of the soul. The awakening of the soul is God giving you enough light where you saw his, your, your condition. You saw his provision. And then God and his loving sovereignty allows you to either receive or reject what he's gave you like to see. And when you see yourself and you see his provision, here's what happens. Faith becomes a reality. And God saves you. But it all started with God. It didn't start with us. He convicted us. He drew us. He showed us. He saves us. It's all a work of an intervening God. So God takes a dead man, breathes enough light into him to see, gives him enough light to respond, and faith brings him in to the kingdom of God. You see, this is the amazing intervening work of God. Listen to what the Bible says, Romans 5, 8, God commended his love towards us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. God intervened for you and I before we ever were. Because how did God see us? Sinners before we ever were. And so God's intervening work began with Christ coming and dying on your behalf and mine. 
And then God's intervening work continued with the conviction of the Holy Spirit, showing us our deadness, showing us our depravity, and then giving us the gospel that we'd understand the remedy for it all. You see, it's a glorious intervening work of God. So let me ask you a question. Can you think of anything that shows the grace of God more vehemently than but God, who rich in mercy? God showing mercy to a child of wrath. Isn't that amazing? Oh my, what a God we serve, that he would intervene on our behalf. But notice the second thing to this, under our regenerated life. It's an indwelling work of God. Look what it says here. Look at verse 5. Even when we were dead in sins. So in other words, even before our condition changed, God, what, hath quickened us. What does that word quicken mean, Pastor? Here's what it means. God made you alive. Here's the picture. The moment that you and I, by faith, by the initiation of God, the intervening work of God, the moment that faith become reality in our life, here's what God did. He placed within you the life of God, the life of himself, and all of a sudden now, a dead man became alive with the life of God. Quickened you, made you alive. Now, let me throw this out just for some folks that may be listening. I want you to listen to what I'm about to say. This word quickened you is in the aorist tense. What does that mean? A one-time event never to be repeated. So here's the reality of it. When did God quicken me? When he saved me? When did God quicken me? The day he saved me. When's God going to quicken me again? He'll never quicken me again. Why? Because it's a one-time event never to repeat it. So therefore, if I could lose it, hey, listen, if I could truly lose my salvation according to the word of God, I could never get it back because it's a one-time event. He quickened us, made us alive by his indwelling, mighty presence. Notice the identifying work of God. Quickened us together with what? Christ. By grace are you saved. What do you mean the identifying work of Christ? Here's what happened. God intervened on your behalf through the conviction of the Holy Spirit. You now all of a sudden saw yourself the way God saw you, as a dead man. Can't respond to the things of God. No desire for the things of God. Hey, I'm entertained by the things of God. I'm knowledgeable about the things of God. But they're not working through me. They're not working in me. They're not changing me moment by moment, day by day. And the course of my life proves it out. God intervened. And then at that moment of faith, God indwells me. He takes a dead man and makes him alive. And in that moment, that the same moment that he indwells me, here's what he does. He identifies me with the one that rose before me in Jesus Christ. And the Bible says we become one with Christ Jesus. And he takes his residence inside of us. And we are seated in him in Christ Jesus. Now let me ask you a question. 
Could you have done that for yourself? Let me ask you this. Show me anywhere in these verses. It tells you to do something to make this happen. You find anywhere in these verses that you're quickened by what you did. You're quickened by what you prayed. You're quickened by how you responded. You're quick. Hey, I want to tell you something. God quickened you. God made you alive. And God identified you. This is the identifying work of God. Blessed be God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, which according to His abundant mercy had begotten us unto a lively hope by the resurrection of Christ from the dead. Here's what Romans 6 says. That moment He saved us. Hey, listen. He carried us back 2,000 years. He put us on the cross when Christ was on the cross. Christ didn't just die for you. He died as you. And that moment, He buried you in a borrowed tomb when Christ was buried. And that very moment, when Christ died out of the grave, hey, God who knew you before you ever were. He said, hey, old Matt got out of the grave with Christ because he's one with my son. And here's the reality. So the death of Christ becomes, the results of the death of Christ becomes ours. The results of the burial of Christ becomes ours. And the results of the resurrection of Christ becomes ours. Hey, we're one with all that Christ is because we're one with who Christ is. That's the identifying work of Christ. By grace are you saved. By grace. By grace. Look at verse 6. Not only a regenerated life, but a raised life. And hath raised us up together and made us seat together in heavenly places in Christ. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this because I've covered this with us in the past. But here's what it speaks of. It speaks of a position that we now hold in oneness with Christ. The wording here in verse 6 made us sit together. There's three, four times in the book of Hebrews that it says of the Lord Jesus that something took place about Christ and then out of the outflow of that, it says, and he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The first one's in Hebrews 1. It speaks of who Christ is. Christ, who by himself purged our sins, sat down. One of the passages in Hebrews speaks of his office as high priest. And he says he sat down. Hebrews 12 says, For the joy that was set before him, and he endured the cross, and he sat down. It's the Greek word kahitso. It means to be appointed to a place of rest. So in other words, because of who Christ is, because of what Christ has done, because of who, what Christ's office holds, and because of the passion and the joy of Christ in doing what he done, God said, Hey, son, come and sit down. But here it says we're sitting with him. It's the same Greek word, but with a little preposition added to it. It's soon kahitso. What does that mean? It means, are y'all seated? Y'all say amen. I hope you are. It means that you became one soon with his appointed position of rest. So everything Christ is, you become one with. Everything Christ did, you become one with. Every office Christ holds as high priest, you become one with. 
the passion and the joy that was set before him, you become one with. So here's what God did. God saved you. He set you in Christ. And everything true of Christ, he's made one with you and me. You say, preacher, I'm not seated at the heavenlies. I'm seated in my recliner. I'm seated at my dining room table. I'm seated in on my couch. Or I'm seated on the floor. Oh, listen, that's where your carcass is. But let me tell you where your soul is. It's already seated in the heavenlies. So in other words, y'all have heard me say this a million times. If you've heard it, say me once. When you die, guess what? You just catch up to where you already are. It's a raised life. Lastly, it's a rewarded life. You say, what do you mean? That in ages to come, he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness towards us through Christ Jesus. What are you saying, preacher? You're saved by grace. Would you agree with me today? If all God ever done for me and for you was to save you out of your dead condition, your depraved condition, and he never done anything else for you, would you agree that you and I already received grace beyond measure? More than we could ever, 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 ever even fathom to deserve. But that's not all he done. This verse says, he saved you by grace. He keeps you by grace. He enables you by grace. He continues to show you grace. He continues to allow you to walk in his grace. That he can show his grace from generation to generation. Over and over and over and over and over again. So listen to what I'm about to say. The same amount of grace that saved you is the same amount of grace that enables you to obey him. So every time you obey him, can I tell you what just happened? God manifested the same grace that saves you. He manifested in you all over again. He didn't give you more grace because Christ is your grace. But here's what he did. He manifested that grace over and over and over again. So I, I don't know about y'all, but, you know, when, when someone, when the Lord saves someone, you know, like Miss Bethany, we had her up here this morning. Praise God for what God done for Miss Bethany. Well, we had Miss Bethany up here this morning, and we just wanted to rejoice that God saved her. And we ought to rejoice when God saves someone. But what about this? Every time I obey God, I rejoice just the same as the day God saved me. You say, why? Took the same amount of grace. Took the same amount of grace. He might show the exceeding riches of his grace. Towards us. Through Christ Jesus. We look in eternity past. 
And we see the divine plan for God in the church. We look into eternity future, and we see the perfected plan of God for the church. But let me ask you a question. Have you ever thought that when God saved you, his plan that he placed in the, before the foundation of the world and the perfection of that plan that will come in our glorification. Have you ever thought that all of that, all the divine plan of God was in effect that God could stand you and me up as a trophy of His grace. I remember the first time I used to play golf all the time. Played college golf, played high school golf, played, played the junior tour in the summers. Used to travel all over the southeast playing one tournament after another after another. I'll never forget the golf course that I was a member of were having their club championship, which depicts in that one tournament the best golfer at the club for that one year. And I'll never forget. For whatever reason, blind squirrel finds an acorn every now and then, praise God. I won that tournament. And can I tell you, I'm a teenager. I didn't care about my name being up on a plaque. Didn't care for that at one bit. I didn't care for the handshakes and the congratulations. That didn't affect I was a teenager. But when they brought out that trophy that stood up to my waist, son, I strutted like a peacock. I thought that was the greatest thing since the day I got my car. By the way, I still got it. But have you ever thought that when you stand before God the Father, that God the Father sees you in Christ? And here's what He sees. That is the victorious trophy of my grace at work. We won. We won. We won. So I want to ask you a question. Has that ever happened to you? Has that really ever happened to you? You say, preacher, I've never saw myself that way before. Well, can I tell you today? That's the first step that God takes you through to show you you're lost. Now, you may not understand all this terminology. You may not even understand all the theology of it. But here's what you do. You become conscious through the Holy Spirit conviction that I'm in desperate, desperate need. Has that ever happened to you? So past reality, present reality. Every person that's listening to me right now, 
Here it is. You're in one or the other. Which is it? You say, well, I'm in between. No, you can't be in between. You're in one or the other. And if you're in the past reality, i got good news for you. But God, who is rich in mercy, He's ready to save you. Right here, right now. I'm going to ask you to do something tonight. I just want you, if you're with your family, wherever you are, I'm just going to ask you to just bow your head. And if you know you're saved, I just want you to be praying for anybody that may be listening that may not know that they are. But if you're listening to me, and you know that you're living in the past reality, and the Spirit of God is dealing with your heart right here, right now. Right here, right now. What's keeping you from saying to Him, that's me. I'm desperate. I need you. Listen, it's not what you pray that saves you. It's the consciousness of your heart that you realize your laws. And God gets you to the place you're willing to submit, surrender to Him. That's called repentance. Father, I don't know who's listening tonight that may be right now wherever they are. They're yielding themselves by faith unto you. And Father, whoever they are, I want to praise you. I want to thank you in advance. I pray that, Father, you'd finish what you started in their hearts right here, right now. But, Father, maybe there's those that are truly saved. And they know, they know the day you got them lost and the day you saved them. They remember the change in their life that took place. Maybe today, maybe for the first time, they've come to the full awareness of exactly what you've done for them and exactly what you've done in them when you saved them. And their heart of gratefulness and thankfulness and affection and appreciation is just welling within them. Oh, Father, may we never, ever lose the awe of your saving work and what you've done for us. So, Father, saved or lost, I pray you'd finish what you started in our hearts. For your glory and your namesake, in Jesus' name, amen.